Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans and thus America itself. Join our host, Chris Stevenson, for season two of our podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens grappling with complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released on the first and third Mondays of each month on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab. Capitalism, a massive influence in the American narrative, loved for driving innovations and raising the standard of living, plagued by the production of opulence and the economic inequality left in its wake. If we understand capitalism better, we understand America better. And it turns out that religion has played and continues to play a significant role in economics, which is of great interest to this podcast series, Religion in the American Experience. To better comprehend what is going on between religion and economics, we have with us today Professor Ben M. Friedman, the William Joseph Meyer Professor of Political Economy at Harvard University, and author of Religion and the Rise of Capitalism. He is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Mr. Friedman has also written and or edited 14 other books and more than 150 articles in professional journals aimed primarily at economists and economic policymakers. His two other general interest books have been The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth, and Day of Reckoning, The Consequences of of American Economic Policy Under Reagan and After. We guarantee that our time together today will help all of us better understand what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion. And we trust that as a result, listeners will come to better understand how revolutionary and indispensable the idea of religious freedom as a governing principle is to the United States and its future. Join us in building this digital-first National Museum of American Religion by donating at storyofamericanreligion.org forward slash contribute, where you can receive a free gift for a donation of $200 or more. Ben, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm very glad to talk with you. Thank you. First, uh, when and how did you become interested in the connection between religion and economics that ultimately led you to write Religion and the Rise of Capitalism? I'm an economist, and the question with which I started was where our modern Western economics comes from. Um, I'm always interested in why ideas occur when and where they do. And so I started trying to understand the origins of my own discipline. So I didn't start from the religious end, I started from the economics end. Uh, We all know that economics is, as we have it today, is a product of the Enlightenment, uh, the 18th century thinkers. 
And so I started to explore how their thinking emerged when and as it did and why it developed into what we have today as modern Western economics. The standard story, however, emphasizes that because we think of the Enlightenment mostly as a move away from belief in a God-centered universe toward what in our modern vocabulary we would call secular humanism, therefore it follows that economics has nothing to do with religion. Uh, I, the more I read and looked at the question, the more it struck me that this wasn't so, and I persuaded myself, and I hope I'm now able to persuade others, that what people like Adam Smith and David Hume were reacting to was uh, a set of new religious ideas uh, in the time and place where they lived. So I came to it from the economic side, not from the religious side, but it struck me that we can't ignore the religious influence in trying to understand where our modern Western economics comes from. Okay, thank you. That's a great way to frame it. Has this been an interest uh, of yours from the beginning of your time as an economist? I mean, you wrote the book here in 2020, uh, or, or, or is it a, more of a recent interest in trying to understand the, the origins of economics and you happened upon this story? Oh, we, 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 could, we could approach that in two ways. As I said a moment ago, I've always been interested in uh, intellectual history, history of ideas, why ideas, and new ways of thinking crop up when and where they do. I wouldn't say it's been a long-standing professional interest, however, in the first few decades in which I was teaching economics and working as an economist, my work was more focused on what we call macroeconomics, and in particular, the way in which monetary and fiscal policies affect the economy, how the public policy can steer our economy to keep us close to full employment, to achieve economic growth over time, that kind of more straightforwardly economic uh, question. And I would say it's only in the last uh, decade or two that I've uh, allowed myself to explore these other questions having to do with the intellectual origin of ideas, but I think I've always been interested in them. Okay, great, fair enough. So you write, and as you just explained that, and I'll quote the book here, uh, the revolution in economic thinking that culminated with the insights of Adam Smith's book, The Wealth of Nations, was a product of the Scottish Enlightenment, close quote, which you just said as well. Can you tell uh, our listeners what the most impactful and relevant characteristics of this age were and how religion and economics then became intertwined? It must have been a very exciting and remarkable period in which to be alive. Look, I'm, I, I'm delighted to be an American living now in the 21st uh, century. So uh, it's not that I yearn to exchange places with somebody else in uh, human history. I don't. Uh, but nonetheless, the uh, atmosphere of Edinburgh and Glasgow uh, in the mid to late 18th century must have been a very remarkable period. Uh, like what was going on in our country at the time, we think of the efflorescence of talent and people like 
uh, Jefferson and Washington and Adams and Franklin and the other great thinkers who gave us our American Republic, we think of that as an extraordinary collection of uh, individuals here in what became the United States. And right about at the same time, there was an extraordinary collection of individuals in Scotland. Incidentally, there was in France as well. There was in uh, Germany. There were many Enlightenments. It turns out that our economics came out of the Scottish Enlightenment, but it wasn't the only part of the Enlightenment. So it must have been an extraordinary time. Now, these people were exploring new ideas of all sorts. The one that I emphasize in my book is the influence from Isaac Newton uh, almost a century before. Isaac Newton, especially in his great work, The Principia Mathematica, which was published in the 1680s, had pioneered the way for a new way of thinking about the physical universe. Uh, Newton showed how to think about uh, the universe in terms of system and mechanism and emphasize that the universe was comprehensible. It wasn't just a bunch of randomly collected creations. And I think by the time we get to uh, 75 years later, people like David Hume and Adam Smith and their contemporaries, I think of Adam Ferguson, I think of William Robertson, many of these great figures were trying to do for the world of humans what Newton had achieved for the physical world. They wanted to bring these ideas of system and mechanism to bear on explaining uh, human behavior uh, in terms of one individual, but also human behavior in terms of how, as a society, we all live together. This is what they were trying to do. Uh, but it also turned out to be a period of great religious ferment. Uh, in particular, uh, this was when uh, Scotland following England and preceding the United States was moving away from the Calvinist beliefs that had dominated thinking for quite some time. And so uh, what I think gave us the economics that we have uh, is in large part this effort to apply Newtonian thinking to the world of humans, but then at the same time influenced uh, by the new religious thinking of the day. Okay, uh, and we're going to get to what that uh, thinking was, but before we get to that question, um, can you uh, share with us uh, the different ways that religious and political leaders viewed self-interest, poverty, luxury, and even living standards, so from pre-Renaissance time up to the Enlightenment. I think that's a very important uh, marker to, to, to understand from what you write in your book. Well, this is a long story going way back. If you look at, for example, the Hebrew Bible, there's a lot about restraining one's self-interest. There are all sorts of things about not stealing and not killing other people and not coveting other people's property uh, and the like. So people uh, have always understood the dangers of self-interest. If we come forward to uh, the medieval uh, Roman Catholic Church, uh, there's great uh, uh, you know, 
great concern, great fears about unbridled self-interest. Uh, and this applied especially in the uh, in the economic realm, but long before the medieval period, Augustine uh, had uh, taught that the lust for money was at a par with the lust for uh, uh, sexual activity and the lust for power. These were all uh, great uh, threats. Now, as we came into the Renaissance, as our ancestors came into the Renaissance, ideas started to change, uh, but in a very limited way, because what the Renaissance was all about in this context was pursuing the uh, glory and power of princes as they thought of them. And of course, it took money to be able to be a glorious prince. So by the time we get to the Renaissance, there's clearly value placed on having money, but there's no value placed on the pursuit of money. So again, there's this aristocratic idea that uh, having money and being able to spend money lavishly uh, creates glory, uh, princes conquer others, uh, nearby city-states, princes put up palaces, princes stage lavish displays and all that. As we move past the Renaissance, we increasingly get into a commercial society, and this presented uh, a twofold challenge. At the one level, people understood that it was uh, self-interest, economic self-interest, that was driving this commercial society. At the same time, people also uh, understood that self-interest getting out of hand uh, was uh, dangerous in whole new ways because the commercial society enabled new ways of exploiting other human beings that hadn't been there before. And by the time we get to, say, the 16th and on into the 17th century, uh, this is a, uh, a real moral conundrum uh, for people. Uh, the, uh, in, in English, the vocabulary that evolved was to think of acting on your own self-interest as a vice and to call such uh, behavior vicious uh, behavior. But at the same time, there was this undercurrent in which people somehow understood that it was self-interest that, uh, again, drove commercial society and somehow made uh, people better off. Now we get into the 18th century, and uh, there's a classic essay uh, by David Hume that I explore in uh, my book, in which uh, Hume asks, what does luxury mean? Uh, is luxury something to be condemned? Because uh, in the century or two before uh, Hume, uh, luxury was coming to mean not the glory of princes, which was good, but individuals uh, wallowing in excess, which is bad. And the idea was that luxury or living in luxury made people effeminate, sapped their strength, took away their uh, ability or willingness to fight for their country, took away their interest in the public welfare, all of this sort of thing. And Hume took that on very uh, frontally in an essay from the 1740s. 1740s is an interesting period. Uh, by this time, Adam Smith is about 20 years old. He was uh, 10 years, 12 years younger than Hume, very much a protege of David Hume. 
Uh, and Hume in his essay tried to establish, well, how can we say what level of consumption uh, behavior is luxury and therefore we ought to disapprove and what level of consumption behavior uh, isn't luxury. And you know, to put it in today's terms, uh, let's let's imagine that I drive a Chevrolet and Chris, you drive a, uh, you drive a BMW. Does that mean that you're participating in luxury and I'm not? Can we draw the 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 dividing line between my Chevy and your BMW? Or maybe your BMW is okay and it's the guy down the street from you who's got a Maserati. So we draw the the line between your BMW and his Maserati. I mean. Putting back, put back in the 18th century context, this is exactly the question Hume was asking, uh, and he gave up. He simply said, there's no such thing as drawing the line. We can't say that some level of consumption, uh, you live in a three-bedroom house and I live in a four-bedroom house and somebody else lives in an eight-bedroom house, uh, we can't say that one of us is being luxurious in a way that we ought to disapprove of in moral terms. So I think this was this was very much the stage state of the uh, debate by the time we get to Adam Smith, and the great challenge for him was to once Hume had uh, cleared the way was to understand again to put it in Newtonian terms. What's the system? What's the mechanism by which you're acting on your, your self-interest and my acting on my self-interest can somehow turn out to make both of us better off? Well, that, that was the challenge that Smith took up. Okay, wonderful. Uh, and, and so you, you write about Adam Smith that his thinking about economics was, quote, secularizing the essential substance of his clerical friend's theological principles, close quote. Can you explain, Ben, the Calvinist doctrines and those of the moderates who fought against them that would have impacted Smith as he began to think about his economic theories? Uh, yes. Uh, the quick history is that there had been a uh, running debate between uh, Calvinists and non-Calvinists within the English-speaking Protestant world coming right up through the middle of the 17th century. With the Protestant uh, uh, revolution or reformation a uh, hundred uh, years before, by the time we get to the mid-17th uh, century, by and large, all of England is Protestant. There are some Roman Catholics left, but they're more or less in hiding. Uh, the Jews had been banished. Uh, they didn't know any Muslims. So it was all within the Protestant world. So this is not about the Protestant Reformation, uh, whether we should be Protestant or Catholic. This was within the English-speaking Protestant world. What kind of Protestant uh, we should be. That was the issue they were addressing. Now, when we get to the middle of the 17th century, we get to the high tide of the uh, Calvinist influence in England. Uh, there was a civil war starting in the 1640s. By the time we get to 1650, the Calvinist uh, forces 
had completely taken over. They abolished the monarchy. They executed the king. They established a Puritan commonwealth under Oliver Cromwell, who was, for all practical purposes, a military dictator. They didn't call him that, but that's what he was. And so the 1640s up through the 1650s was the period of absolute uh, Puritan Calvinist uh, dominance uh, in England and uh, Scotland. Now, from that point on, uh, people, once the Puritan Commonwealth had been overthrown uh, after Cromwell's death, then the religious thinking started to move back away from uh, Calvinist uh, principles. And as uh, I try to lay out in the book, uh, this movement away from uh, Calvinist thinking was at its height in England in the latter half of the uh, 17th century. It was at its height in Scotland in the early to mid part of the 18th century. And that's important because that's just the period at which Smith and Hume and Robertson and these other great figures were coming into young adulthood and therefore forming their view of the world. And then interestingly, uh, this debate uh, moved on and in the latter half of the 18th century and on into the 19th century, it, uh, the debate was at its height in the um, new United States and then the early Republic and played out here. Now, what were the main features of this debate that uh, were influential for purposes of Smith's thinking? I think there were three. First, Calvin had taught uh, that because of the fall of Adam and Eve, uh, humans were born, to use his phrase, utterly depraved and unable to distinguish good and evil, unable to do any good in the world. And by contrast, uh, people moved away from that to thinking that all individuals were born with an inherent goodness. They had, uh, to use John Locke's famous metaphor, they, they were born with the candle of the Lord, in other words, reason, if only they would use it. Second, in terms of people's afterlife, Calvin had famously preached predestination, <clears throat> namely the choice uh, that the choice of whether any individual was going to be to be saved in the afterlife or condemned to an eternity of punishment. Uh, that's a choice that was made not only before the person was born but before the world had even been created. And therefore it followed that nothing that a person could do in his or her lifetime, no choice that the person could make, no decision, no action the person could take would have any bearing on whether he or she was saved. And by contrast, uh, the post-Calvinists believe that everybody is uh, born potentially able to be saved and that our choices and our actions are effective for this purpose, uh, to put it in the words of John Tillotson, who was the first Archbishop of Canterbury appointed after England's glorious revolution in 1688, uh, people have the opportunity to cooperate, to cooperate with God in achieving their salvation. And then finally, uh, Calvin famously taught that 
the sole purpose you and I and all human beings are here to begin with uh, is to glorify God. And by contrast, the post-Calvinists thought that uh, one of the reasons we're here, and maybe the re main reason that we're here, uh, is that the divine intent is that humans be happy. Now, what did all this add up to? It added up to a whole new view of the human character and a whole new, new view of the possibilities for human choice, human action, human agency. And my central argument in the book is that this more benign, more optimistic view of the human character and the more expansive uh, view of the possibilities for human agency are what enabled uh, Smith and his contemporaries to reach the ideas that gave us modern Western economics. Compelling, Ben. Fantastic. Well said. Um, that, that allows us now to move to 18th century America, where we see, uh, as you state, natural, quote, natural theology, the natural theology movement with an emphasis on religion as a matter of morality as opposed to doctrine, close quote. Can you, so, so what was the effect, Ben, of this on the economic thinking that began in this new country? When we say the new country, I think we have to begin with the fact that our country was started by uh, people with quite uh, disparate uh, economic, uh, not just economic, religious views uh, in the different uh, colonies. In the New England colonies, uh, the people who came here were Puritans, and they came here in order to be able to have a Puritan commonwealth of the form that uh, they didn't realize at the time would eventuate in England. And then after it disappeared in England, they wanted to have it here. So the people in uh, the New England colonies were arch Puritans. If you go down the coast, by the time you get to Pennsylvania, these are primarily uh, Quakers. When you get to Maryland, they're Roman Catholics. When you get to uh, to below the Mason-Dixon line, they're primarily Episcopalians. So start with the fact that there's a lot of religious heterogeneity uh, in the United States. Now, especially in the New England uh, colonies, which played a disproportionate role in those days, it's hard for us today in the modern United States that spans a continent to realize what a role the New England colonies played um, both intellectually and also in the revolution, but uh, they did. The revolution started here. The, this debate that I've already described between Calvinist thinking and post-Calvinist thinking played itself out here in the same way that it did in, the, uh, in Scotland in Smith and Hume's time and in uh, England a half a century or so before that. So you had uh, people like the arch-Calvinist uh, Calv uh, Cotton Mather and his father Increase Mather and the whole generations of uh, Puritan clergymen like them giving way to new thinkers, uh, people like Jonathan Mayhew, Ebenezer Gay, people whose names I'm guessing are not uh, very familiar to many of our listeners today, but people who, it wasn't just that they were 
moving away from Calvinist notions like predestination, they wanted to place a different emphasis on uh, religion. Uh, Their view is that what mattered was less what creed you subscribe to. I mean, to, to repeat, they're all Protestants, they're all Christians, but what mattered was less whether you subscribe to the Westminster Confession uh, or the 39 Articles of the Church of England or something like that, than how you believed. Were you a moral human being? They increasingly went back to the early idea that the purpose of religion is to enable people to live upright, righteous, moral lives. And so there was a whole movement, uh, and it, this took place in England and Scotland too, but it was especially interesting and uh, formative here in the United States. And this went along with this natural theology uh, view that one of the ways, if not the primary way, in which we learn about the divine is by observing by studying the world that the divine has created. So uh, the idea is to look around us, instead of looking into a book, look around us at the world. And this was part of what they were after as well. Okay, thank you. So pre-millennial and post-millennial religious thought figures uh, in the book quite a bit as far as that religious thought, those religious thoughts and their influence on economics in this new America. Can you tell us about those two religious thoughts or themes? Yes, first of all, this is a piece of vocabulary that is somewhat confusing, but important to get uh, straight. Uh, What we're talking about is the millennium, means thousand years of bliss, freedom from evil, Uh, foretold in the book of uh, Revelation. Now, uh, Christians had uh, stewed for years and years and years, really ever since the beginning of Christianity, over whether these predictions in the final book of the New Testament were to be treated as actual predictions of real-world events, or whether they were a metaphorical description of mankind's spiritual journey. Uh, It's pretty clear that the author of the book of uh, Revelation, John of Patmos, as he identifies himself, uh, thought, and the very early Christians thought that this was a a view of what was going to happen to real human beings in the real world. And then starting with Augustine in the fourth and uh, late fourth and early fifth century, uh, Christian thinking went the other way. Augustine preached, no, 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 this wasn't about the real world. This was a metaphorical account of our spiritual journey. And then right around the time of the Protestant Reformation led by Luther, and then uh, on into the Calvinists and the English speaking Protestant world, Uh, the view went back in part in the other way. So to begin, there's this great debate over whether this is to be metaphorical about our spiritual journey or whether it's to be about the real world. The second question is that if it's about the real world, 
How do we get the timing straight? Do we think that this thousand-year period, or however long it's going to last, of freedom of evil is something that ordinary human beings like you and me uh, will be able to enjoy? Or is this only something after the uh, world as we know it comes to an end, and as uh, the 20th and 21st chapter of Revelation explains the world as we know it is burned up. Uh, the old earth is gone. There's a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and so forth and so on. And I'm guessing this language from Re Revelation will be familiar to at least some of your listeners. The group that thought that humans like you and me would enjoy living in this better time came to be called post-millennialists. Post meaning that the world as we know it will not end until after the millennium has occurred. And by contrast, people who thought the world would end before the millennium occurred were called pre-millennialists. Now, as I explain in the book, the, this distinction may sound technical, but it carries an enormous amount of weight in terms of how people think about prospects for humans, what we should try to achieve on this earth. Uh, is it possible for us to achieve a better world? The post-millennialists will say, yes, of course it's possible. It's foretold in Revelation that we will. Uh, and by contrast, the premillennialists say, no, it isn't really possible for us to achieve a better world. We have to simply wait for the second coming and the world as we know it to end, and then things will get better, but they won't be better for people like you and me because we won't be here. Uh, how about striving to improve uh, the world? Post-millennialists came to the conclusion not only <clears throat> that the world will get better uh, within the lifetimes of people like you and me, but uh, striving to make it better has religious value for two reasons. One, we're helping to bring about something that's foretold in the scripture, but then second, for those who believe in a second coming of uh, the Messiah, the faster we make the world better, the faster the millennium will come, and therefore the faster the second coming will arrive. And by contrast, for those who are premillennialists, all of this is so much wasted effort because we're not going to make the better world better off. Uh, premillennialists largely believe that the right thing to do is to save souls and convert people and get them ready for the second coming. And that will happen before the world gets better. Now, I have to emphasize all of this is a very simplified view because even premillennialists have been very active in our country in some of the major reform efforts. Uh, there are lots of reform efforts that premillennialists have not participated in exactly on the grounds that I've stated, but some they have. So for example, premillennialists 
uh, were very active in the campaign to abolish slavery in the 19th century. In the 19th century and on into the 20th, premillennialists were very active in the temperance campaign, campaign against drunkenness. It was largely premillennialists who gave us prohibition in the 1920s. And so this, this is, uh, there's, there are tensions here, as there always are in these religious thinkings. But by and large, the key distinction for purposes of economics is whether to think that the world is going to get better within the lifetime of human beings, such as we know them. And if so, then that opens the way for thinking about all sorts of aspects of economic growth and improvement. And by contrast, if uh, one is a premillennialist, then thinking about economic growth and improvement is somewhat beside the point. Very, very helpful. Super helpful. Thank you. You quote, Ben, an early 19th century American professor of moral philosophy at Columbia University in New York, who said, quote, I cannot but reverence the claims of free commerce as something holy, close quote. Also, you paraphrase a contemporary of his who was editor of the influential North American Review, writing that he thought free commerce, quote, upset the natural state of affairs that God had intended for the world, close quote. What is going on here, Ben, and what is its significance in the tale you tell in the book? Well, first of all, to, say, to set the economic stage for answering uh, your question, uh, we have to remember that putting aside slavery, which of course led to the Civil War, the dominant economic policy question of the first half of the 19th century was free trade versus protectionism. In exactly the phrase uh, sense that we use those terms uh, today, should we put tariffs on goods being brought into the United States so that workers who make uh, some good or other uh, and the firms that make those goods uh, don't have to compete uh, or at least don't have to compete as hard against uh, foreigners. And just to take an example, um, uh, when I was a child, uh, the United States was probably the leading country in the world for making uh, color television tubes. Uh, we don't make televisions anymore uh, in the United States. If you go to uh, your favorite uh, big box store and want to buy a television, or if you go onto Amazon to buy one, what you will discover is that we import all of our televisions today. Now, uh, the free trade versus protectionism argument would have been about, I mean, they didn't, of course, know what televisions were in the first half of the 18th century, 19th century, but they would have said, yes, that's exactly it. It's, uh, some people would have said it's unfair that these companies like Zenith and Motorola and RCA got driven out of business by companies uh, relying on cheaper labor abroad. And the free traders uh, would have said, no, that's exactly the point. By allowing those goods into the United States, we're allowing millions of people to buy television sets at a cheap price. Well, that's, that's what the debate was about. And to repeat, that was, apart from slavery, the number one economic policy debate of the early 19th century. Now, one of the aspects, the reason I put so much about that into the book, uh, Chris, is that uh, one of the aspects of the way in which economics developed 
in our country compared to the Smith-Hume period in Scotland, one of the ways that I found most fa uh, fascinating is that in the uh, early United States uh, and on in all really throughout the 19th century, the people whom we think of as the leading economists of the day were all either clergymen or if they weren't clergymen, they were very uh, religiously committed individuals uh, who were uh, self-consciously trying to bring their religious commitments to bear on their professional work. And that's a great contrast. I mean, Hume was an outspoken at best uh, agnostic, more likely an atheist, I think. Uh, Smith was probably a deist of the kind that we identify with Americans of his era, like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. So for the Scots who were doing this, it was absolutely not the case that they were uh, religiously committed individuals trying to bring religion to bear on their economics. They just uh, thought the way they did because the religious thinking was part of what I call their worldview. It's a phrase from Einstein. But here in the United States, it was different. Uh, the Columbia professor whom you uh, uh, mentioned was uh, John McVicker. A uh, very interesting character. As far as we know, he was the first person to teach a course in economics at an American college or university. He was a professor at Columbia. McVicker was a, an Episcopal priest. Uh, the person who wrote on the other side, the, with the, uh, uh, the, the protectionist advocate who edited the North American Review uh, was Francis Bowen. Bowen wasn't a clergyman, but he was very much a strong uh, Unitarian. These were religious individuals. And what I found so fascinating was that both of them, even though they were on either sides of the, uh, of the free trade versus protectionism debate, each one of them uh, felt obliged to frame his debate, Bowen in favor of uh, protectionism and McVicker in favor of free trade. Each one of them felt obliged to frame his side of the debate in terms of the divine will. And exactly as you quote, uh, McVicker said, no, 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 it, it, it would be a violation of God's intent to have uh, tariffs. And Bowen said it would be a violation of God's intent not to have tariffs. So, And there were others as well. Uh, I think of uh, Francis uh, Wayland, for example, Francis Wayland, who was at Brown University was very influential. Wayland wrote the best-selling economics textbook in the United States before the Civil War. Uh, Wayland was a Baptist minister and also a, a free trader. And he too thought it was a violation of God's will to impose tariffs. So the, in a way that Smith and Hume didn't, these early Americans very much framed their economics in terms of their religious thinking. Thank you. And, and you wrote uh, in this chapter as well uh, that, and this, is, this captures what you just said, quote, the laws of economics were an expression of God's unity and perfection, no less than the laws governing the physical universe, close quote. This is representative, correct, of what you're sort of saying here, that economics yes, I think, was... Yeah. Yes, I yes I think that's right. These were strong. <clears throat> these early American economists were strong religious believers, and 
their view it goes back to something we were talking about a minute or two ago, their view in the context of the natural theology movement, their view was that the universe, the world in which we live had been created by the divine and therefore um, aspects of the world like markets were part of the divine intent for making people happy. And we learn about the divine by observing how humans behave and how societies work and how markets work. It's part of what they thought. Very revealing, thank you. We are talking with Ben M. Friedman, the William Joseph Meyer Professor of Political Economy at Harvard University and author of Religion and the Rise of Capitalism about the role that religion plays in economics. Join us in building the Digital First National Museum of American Religion by donating at storyofamericanreligion.org forward slash contribute, where you can receive a free gift for a donation of $200 or more. Then uh, let's move post to post-Civil War America, where Protestant clergy, all clergy, uh, probably, absolutely, uh, saw and commented upon the Gilded Age that was all around them. For example, the famous preacher Henry Ward Beecher, brother of Uncle Tom's Cabin's author Harriet Beecher Stowe, declared that, quote, no community can be civilized except through riches. You cannot civilize poverty. And no man in this land suffers from poverty unless it be more than his fault, unless it be his sin, close quote. Could you tell us more about what these comments represent? Yes, I think the people of the day, clergy as well as uh, others, uh, understood that uh, America was moving into uh, an industrial age that was going to uh, bring uh, improved living standards in a way that the world had not seen before. And they turned out to be right. Uh, the sermon of uh, Henry Ward Beecher, uh, Beecher incidentally was the pastor at Plymouth Congregational in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, the sermon of Beecher's that I emphasize in the book, although I draw on several of them, was his Thanksgiving Day sermon in uh, 1870, in which because it was Thanksgiving Day, he was of course talking about what Americans have to be thankful for, but he was also looking ahead and reading that sermon today and knowing how the uh, industrial revolution and America's great age of industrialization played out uh, shows how insightful uh, Beecher was. He, he really got it right. He talked about America moving on into a golden age, I think is the way he put it, uh, of fabulous wealth never before seen in which uh, people in all stations of life would move to higher living standards. And, uh, and as an economist, I have to look back and say that was, that was prescient. He really understood it. And then he went on as David Hume had uh, 150 years earlier in the essay on uh, luxury that you and I were just talking about before. Uh, Beecher went on to draw moral inferences uh, from this, just as Hume and others of the Enlightenment had done. Uh, Beecher's view was that with this uh, improved 
living standards uh, with the improved wealth would come a, uh, a better moral society. Now, what was interesting as we move on into the latter half of the 19th century was that while the economic part of what Beecher foretold turned out to be exactly correct, uh, the moral part uh, was coming into question. Uh, it had not occurred to Beecher and his contemporaries that uh, along with this increase in general living standards would come the development of widespread urban poverty. That just hadn't occurred to them. Uh, the, I don't make a big deal of it in this book. I did in one of my previous books. But one of the more interesting book titles of that period was uh, the title uh, chosen by the American economist Henry George. His title was Progress and Poverty. Now, uh, you and I wouldn't think much about that title if we saw it in a bookstore today. But in the 1870s, again, the Beecher Thanksgiving uh, sermon that I was mentioning a minute ago was from 1870. The Henry George uh, book is from, I think, 1879. Uh, for people in the 1870s, the notion of progress and poverty together was startling. They hadn't uh, thought that the two would go together, like Beecher. They all thought that uh, if the country moved to general prosperity, uh, to use the words that John Kennedy used uh, again uh, almost 100 years later, this was going to be a rising tide that would lift all the boats. Well, by the 1880s or so, or by the Henry George's book was a little uh, ahead of the time, by the, by the 1880s, everybody understood that the rising tide wasn't uh, raising all of the boats. And so... Uh, for people who then were concerned about all of this poverty in the midst of all of the prosperity, this created a moral conundrum. And uh, in, in effect, they were, people concluded that, or some people at least conclude, concluded that while Beecher had gotten it right on the economics, he had gotten it wrong on the moral uh, tenor of the society. And that's what gave rise to a competing uh, view within the American Protestant establishment uh, that was called then, and we refer to today as the social gospel. I'm thinking of the writings of people like Walter Rauschenbusch and Josiah Strong and uh, Washington Gladden, uh, a very different view of the interaction between economics and morality, very different from what Beecher had held, but equally prominent in the uh, American Protestant establishment and more so uh, as we got toward the end of the 19th century and on into the early decades of the 20th century before World War I. That's a great segue, Ben, to my next question. Uh, I want, wanted to ask you about uh, those two uh, competing visions for the nation's economy, as you write it, uh, and how public policy should guide guide us, and that is the gospel of wealth and the gos the social gospel. Now, you, I, I guess you talked about the gospel of wealth when we were talking about uh, Beecher, correct? 
That was yes. I would regard I would regard Henry Ward Beecher as uh, have to be careful because there 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 have been two very important and prominent uh, Reverend Beechers in American religious history. Uh, the father was Lyman Beecher, who was a very key figure in the development of American Protestantism before the Civil War. But the son, who, as you rightly point out, was the uh, brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe, uh, the son, Henry Ward Beecher, was the one in uh, Brooklyn. And he was, uh, I take to be one of the foremost uh, spokesmen for what came to be known as the gospel of wealth. The phrase is not a a phrase that uh, I know that of Henry Beecher's ever using the phrase uh, is taken from an essay by a non-clergyman, uh, Andrew Carnegie, that was widely uh, published, published and uh, read at the time. Okay, so we have the gospel of wealth and the social gospel coming into uh, the 20th century. Uh, in the early 20th century, you explain... Uh, quote, economics was a sufficiently mature discipline at this point that its susceptibility to influence from the broader culture of the society at large no longer extended to basic theoretical concepts in the way that it had earlier. Rather, the influence of society was more a matter of application and method, close quote. Can you explain the significance of that observation and how it played out? Yes, first, uh, the observation, and you're quoting it exactly uh, correctly, uh, this is something that I've taken from uh, historians of science and uh, intellectual historians more generally. I think, for example, of Thomas Kuhn, a very famous historian of science. Uh, the idea is that intellectual disciplines are, at their infancy, extremely open to influence from outside the discipline, from what Kuhn thinks of as uh, other lines of thinking, from ordinary common sense, from uh, events. And then as the discipline matures, increasingly the foundational ways of thinking within the discipline become set and the opportunities for influence from outside, either from other lines of thought or from uh, the practical issues of the day, become, as you put it, a matter of application and uh, methodology. Now, uh, wh why do I emphasize this in, in my book? The reason is that I'm charting here pretty much the entire history of modern Western economics. And the time of Adam Smith and David Hume and Adam Ferguson and some of these other great figures from the Scottish Enlightenment of the mid 18th century, that's the very infancy, the birth of modern economics. And so according to this pretty standard thinking, that's the time in which the most basic fundamental theoretical uh, foundation of the subject would be subject to external influence. And I think that's the way things played out uh, with the influence of religious thinking. To repeat what I said before, uh, Smith and Hume were not religiously committed individuals. They weren't deliberately trying to bring ideas from the world of theology into the world of economics. It's just that 
these ideas were all around them and being discussed, and that's what they picked up uh, in the world in which they lived. But as we come forward over the you know, two and a half centuries since uh, that time, uh, economics as an intellectual discipline is maturing all the time. It's developing. It isn't static. It's maturing because the economy is changing a lot. And the questions economists are putting uh, to themselves uh, and the world is putting to them are also changing a lot. But nonetheless, the discipline is maturing and the opportunities for these external influences on the foundational thinking of the subject are becoming fewer and fewer. And so by the time we get to the late 19th century, and then especially on into the 20th and up to our present day, <clears throat> the story uh, of religious influence that I'm telling in my book changes from the kind of foundational thinking of Adam Smith up to a question of, well, how do we go about designing economic policies? What should the right policies be? How do we do empirical work to decide questions like whether this policy or that policy or some other will be effective? And so there's this gradual uh, change in the way in which religion is affecting uh, affecting the thought process of the economist. And the debate between the uh, gospel of wealth uh, crowd that we were just talking about and the social gospel crowd that uh, we've now started to talk about in the late 19th and early 20th century is very important for this purpose because many of the economists of that day, I think, for example, of Richard Ely, who wrote the best seller referred before to uh, Francis Whalen's book, which was the best-selling economic textbook in the country before the Civil War. Uh, Richard Ely's textbook was the best-selling book in the period before World War uh, I. Um, Ely was very influenced by the social gospel period of the day. The, uh, the great problem that they saw uh, was not how to get production higher, the Industrial Revolution had already done that for them. Again, Beecher was right. The country had gone uh, in terms of average uh, standard of living to unprecedented heights, but there were all these people who were being left behind. There was Henry George's progress and poverty. And so increasingly people like Ely, uh, inspired by the social gospel movement, started to address questions of distribution and how we get from, from the um, overall prosperity to uh, a prosperity in which everybody can participate. And then moving forward just a little bit further in the story, uh, this came to a head, I think, in the New Deal of the 1930s because Franklin Roosevelt, who was very, certainly not uh, an economist, uh, Roosevelt had, was very much under the influence of one of the social gospel thinkers of his time, uh, namely Reverend Endicott Peabody, who had been the headmaster at Groton School when Roosevelt was a student there. And it wasn't just that Roosevelt was a student at Groton. Uh, Roosevelt and Re Reverend Peabody remained close uh, all, all the way into uh, Roosevelt's adulthood. So 
this new thinking that culminated in the policy world in the New Deal uh, were, was very much a product of the social gospel. We're going to get to that uh, very subject, the New Deal and the economic, economics of that. Uh, but before we get there, I want to ask you uh, uh, one other question. One of the founders uh, in the early, early 20th century, one of the founders of the American Economic Association said this, quote, we may build a new earth out of the difficult material we have to work with and cause justice and kindness to rule in the very place where strife now holds sway. A new Jerusalem may actually rise out of the fierce contentions of the modern market. The wrath of men may praise God and his kingdom may come, not in spite of, but by means of the contests of the economic sphere. Close quote. Ben, how common was this belief and what were its effects? You have talked a little bit about this, and I think it goes to the influence of religious thinking on the applications of economics of the period. But tell us a little bit about what this represents. Well, to begin, I want to make clear that this language being used about a new earth and a new Jerusalem is exactly the language from the 21st chapter of Revelation. This is a reflection of post, this person who was uh, uh, saying this was a post-millennialist, namely somebody who thought not only that the world uh, could be made better off within the lifetimes of human beings like ourselves, but thought there was a religious duty to bring about that improvement. So he's he's quoting there from uh, Revelation. Now, these were the words of an economist, but an economist who was very much inspired by the social gospel thinking. It turned out that uh, the social gospel thinking was important for uh, economics at this period, not just uh, intellectually, but also organizationally. The American Economic Association, which remains today the flagship organization for our discipline in the United States. Uh, I'm a member of the American Economic Association. I would guess that um, the overwhelming majority of people who teach economics at universities the way I do, or people who work as economists in banks and brokerage houses and industrial firms, you know, the over, most people belong to the organization. Uh, the American Economic Association was founded right at the period we were talking about, was founded in uh, uh, 1885. The people who founded it were economists, but they were very close to the social gospel movement. Many of them had intended at one point in their early lives to go into the clergy. Many of them had written books or articles with the word church or religion or something like that in the title before they wrote about economics. And so there was a very great um, uh, back and forth and mutual influence between the social gospel thinkers and the economists. Uh, Richard Ely, whom I mentioned before, was a great figure in the Chautauqua a movement that I'm guessing will be uh, familiar to some of your listeners. Uh, I mentioned that Ely's textbook 
was the best-selling American economic textbook before World War I. It grew out of lectures that he gave at Chautauqua in upstate uh, or western uh, New York near Buffalo. So uh, there was a, a lot of uh, back and forth. Uh, the social gospel uh, figures among the clergy, people like Gladden and Strong and uh, Rauschenbusch, very much looked to the economists to say what the means would be by which the society would achieve a better distribution. They wanted the Protestant churches to take the lead in pushing the society toward what they saw as a more just distribution of all of this miraculous wealth. But they knew that they, as clergymen, didn't know how to bring this about. They thought that was a task for this still new discipline that they called either political economy or economics. And so they thought it was their job as the clergy to push the government into uh, undertaking programs to make the world a better place to achieve this more just distribution. But they thought it was up to the economists to design the program. So very much a symbiosis between the two. Okay. So I, I, I lied. I have one other question before we get to the Depression. Uh, in the early 20th century, before the Depression hit, there were revivalist Protestants, as you write in your book. What role did their religious outlook play in the American economy? Well, the people whom we're thinking of as revivalists were very much pre-millennials. Uh, uh, this was a long tradition going back into the 19th century. We absolutely don't want to think that uh, the people that you're calling uh, revivalists, that many others would call evangelicals, uh, that I'm calling premillennials, premillennialists, we don't want to think these people suddenly emerged in the 1920s. They didn't. There was this long tradition going back to uh, great figures, uh, think of... Uh, Charles Grandison Finney, a great figure in the Presbyterian Church, and uh, also in the abolition movement in the uh, in mid uh, part of the century, uh, people like Dwight Moody, um, founder of the Moody Bible Institute that we still have with us today in the latter part of the century. So this had been there uh, for a long time. Now, um, to repeat, these are by and large pre-millennialists. And so uh, they are mostly not interested in the campaign uh, to make the world a better place and to undertake reform movements before the second coming arrives. Now, as I said before, you have to be very, I don't want to oversimplify, because uh, Finney, for example, was a great figure in the abolition movement. Many other premillennials were too. Also, I mentioned temperance. But by and large, uh, the premillennialist, revivalist, uh, evangelical group at this time would have been opposed to uh, government uh, interference with the economy, as they would have put it, or government steering of the economy as the social gospel people would instead have put it. And so they were part of the 
the group that was all prepared in advance to resist the New Deal when it came. And so it wasn't as if uh, Roosevelt's programs during the Depression suddenly called into uh, existence a bunch of people with religious views who hadn't been around before. They were there all right. along, uh, but uh, it was the New Deal that in many ways galvanized their opposition to uh, government playing a role in the economy. Okay, so now let's let's go to the economic earthquake of the Depression. You write, Ben, that, quote, religion could hardly remain immune to this onslaught that so upended widely held assumptions and reoriented popular thinking, nor could economics, close quote. Can you tell us this story? Yes, I think the Great Depression uh, was an enormous blow to the thinking of the, and not just the thinking, to the energy of the mainline uh, Protestant uh, movement in the United States, most of whom were post-millennialists. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it, it, you and I weren't alive during that uh, period. My parents uh, certainly were, were. It must have been tough to maintain a kind of secular optimism about the world during the 1930s. Uh, was not only the widespread economic hardship, the world seemed to be falling apart uh, here in the United States. Uh, I don't think we came very close to uh, either the fascists or the communists taking over uh, the country, but that was certainly happening elsewhere. Uh, Russia had been taken over by communists. Uh, the continent of Europe was being taken over by uh, fascists. Even in England in the 1930s, there was a very powerful fascist movement, uh, the BUF, British Union of Fascists, uh, that uh, for British Union for fa Fascism, which many people expected under Oswald Mosley to uh, take over from uh, in, in England. So this, this was a very troubled period, uh, uh, economically, politically, then World War II arrived. So it was tough to maintain one's optimism, I suppose. And under the pressure of the times, I think the kind of uh, optimistic worldview that the post-millennialists largely centered in these mainline Protestant denominations like the Episcopalians, the Presbyterians, the by then the Methodists, the Congregationalists, and so forth, that, that these people embraced came to seem a lot less compelling. And by contrast, the uh, the uh, the premillennialists, many of whom were now uh, called fundamentalists because they adhered to the precepts that were laid down in a series of books uh, published in the 19 aughts and 19 teens called the fundamentalists. The premillennialists seemed to be gaining the other upper hand because their view, at least of many of them, was that uh, before the world got better, it was going to get an awful lot worse. Uh, the Revelation talks about tribulations and all that. So as they saw all of these disasters happening, uh, 
their view is, ah, yes, this is the sign that the world is going to come to an end. So I think this was the period when the mainline pr Protestant churches started to lose out compared to uh, compared to uh, the evangelical, more fundamentalist movement. And I think that shift of energy within the Protestant world continues today. Today, um, the, the Episcopalians and the Presbyterians are uh, struggling to get people to show up in the pews in many uh, cities. And by contrast, there's a lot of energy in the evangelical Protestant world. So I think the shift that started then is still with us today. And then we have FDR, who was Episcopalian, and he, the way he dealt with or tried to deal with the depression, uh, the the reactions of, of uh, leaders throughout the country and, and Amer the, the general public laid the foundation for some of our, the, the, the same ideologies that are at war it seems today, right? When he instituted certain things, one group of Americans would say, let's champion that, but then the other group of religious Americans would say, well, no, we can't do that for this and that religious reason. So give us a little bit of that story. Well, again, to begin with the economics, the whole notion of the government's, federal government's role in the economy never really came up uh, in a significant way other than things like tariffs and slavery. Uh, until after the Civil War. And the reason was that until then, we didn't have much of a unified national economy to begin with. But under the uh, force of industrialization right through the mid and late 19th century, uh, the United States did increasingly develop a national economy. And therefore, uh, the question of what role the federal government would play in steering it naturally came to the fore. And much of the issue of what you and I were talking about a few minutes ago in the debate between the social gospelists and the gospel of wealth was precisely about the role that the federal government would play. Now, I think a person would have to be living in a closet not to understand that that debate is still with us today. And whether the question is the size of government or what pro government programs we should have or uh, what the level of taxes should be or how much regulation uh, we should have. All of these issues are very much uh, with us uh, right, to, right today. Now, uh, it was under Roosevelt, in the, the younger Roosevelt in the Depression, that the government moved to take on a much greater role in the economy than ever had been uh, before. I mentioned regulation, for example. Uh, things like our securities markets were virtually unregulated before the Depression. Uh, it was the Depression that gave us the Securities Exchange uh, Commission and all of the rules. The fact that if you call your broker and want to buy a stock, uh, that broker has a lot of rules that he or she has to, uh, has, has to follow. And that broker has to have a Series 7 exam and all of that sort of thing in order to be allowed to sell you a stock. All of this comes out of the Depression. Banks, I wouldn't say that banks were entirely unregulated before the Depression, but uh, the level of bank regulation that we have in the United States, even the fact of, of deposit insurance. The United States had no de uh, deposit insurance before 
the Great Depression. And so the fact that you can go into your local bank uh, branch today and assuming it's an FDIC member bank, which most banks are, uh, you can be confident that up to $250,000, if something goes wrong with the bank, your deposit is insured. That's all a product of the depression. And in many other uh, areas as well, things like unemployment insurance, things like social security, uh, uh, things like uh, federal government responsibility for uh, making sure that the uh, unemployment rate doesn't get too high. Uh, you know, we're, uh, today we take it pretty much for granted that if the economy uh, goes into a tail, well, to think about today, the, the, the unemployment rate went up to nearly 10% last spring because of uh, the coronavirus. And so the natural question became, uh, well, what is the government going to do about that? And both the Trump administration then and the Biden administration now have programs to uh, try to move the economy forward. It's not a partisan, you know, how, how much and what kind, of course, is something the parties debate over. But uh, nobody last spring would have stood aside and said, oh, well, the economy is at 10% unemployment, that's nothing, no concern to the federal government. But if you go back before the depression, it was. So uh, in short, lots and lots of things uh, changed. Now, uh, the what you call the revivalist, what I'm preferring to call the evangelical, in some cases, fundamentalist uh, community, were very much opposed uh, to this in part on premillennialist grounds. Uh, in part on uh, uh, grounds of traditional uh, Protestant uh, voluntarism. Uh, it was a departure when these people like Washington Gladden and uh, Walter Rauschenbusch, the great social gospel figures, wanted to turn to government to uh, rescue people from poverty. Uh, their predecessors would have said, no, uh, it's, it's up to the Protestant churches uh, in a voluntary way to uh, make this happen. Uh, we don't need government, but Rauschenbusch and Gladden said, no, that's not right. The, the economy has changed and the task is just too great. Uh, we can't, you know, the churches having soup kitchen, kitchens and passing out used clothing and all that are just not up to the task. And of course that became much more evident in the depression, but there was, uh, a uh, religious uh, strand of opposition to the Depression. Um, people like uh, James Fifield, who was the head of the largest congregational uh, church in the United States, and many others. And I, I uh, described the role of many of them in, in opposing uh, Roosevelt and then continuing to oppose uh, economic uh, policies like that after uh, the Depression and World War II were over, uh, many people from this group were extremely disappointed, incidentally, with Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, Eisenhower became president in 1952. Uh, the Depression was over. World War II was over. This was the first Republican uh, president that the United States had had in 20 years. And many people from these groups were uh, hoping that Eisenhower was going to roll back many of these essential elements of the New Deal that 
we've been talking about. And he had no interest. Turned out he had no interest. He was a Republican, of course, uh, but he had no interest whatsoever in doing that. There's a statement by Eisenhower that I quote in the book saying that in his view, uh, any political party that got rid of things like Social Security and deposit insurance and uh, unemployment insurance would just not be heard of. They would just be written into oblivion. So I think uh, with the passage of a generation, uh, times have changed. And I think uh, today, for example, uh, it would absolutely not be a standard view of the uh, evangelical community that we should get rid of social security, just to pick one example. That's not what these people think, but they did uh, at that time. Fascinating. Okay, let's uh, move up to communism. You mentioned Eisenhower, uh, his presidency very much uh, involved in the communist threat. So communism was very much uh, according to your, what you write, very much part of the American religious economic calculations. Uh, and, and that ended in Christmas, uh, on Christmas Day in 1991. So can you tell us sort of what those economic calculations were, religious economic calculations were during the Cold War, and then uh, what the adjustments were or tried to be once communism ended? Well, I would prefer I would prefer not to use the word calculation uh, that that has a ring that it does. Uh, You're right. Doesn't has a ring that doesn't fit comfortably with the uh, tone of my book. So I want to make that clear. Yes, to, sorry. To, to you, no, no, but clear to your. See, I I, th I see the role of the communist threat at mid twentieth century as being quite important in the following sense. The mid 20th century was a period in which religious conservatism and economic conservatism came together in the United States in a way that they had not been before. Now, I think the reason this happened is that both groups came to understand that they were resisting a common enemy, and moreover, a common enemy that, in the view of the day, uh, presented a uh, an existential threat. And I I'm old enough that I remember going through drills when I was in elementary school and even into junior high school, in which we would go through drills of hiding ourselves underneath our desks in case the Soviet Union set off a, uh, an atomic bomb or a hydrogen bomb uh, in the vicinity. Well, from the perspective of all these years later, the notion is almost laughable. Uh, if an atomic bomb goes off anywhere near you, hiding, a, hiding yourself under your wooden desk isn't gonna matter for anything. But this was the thought period of the time, the notion that there would be a, uh, a World War III fought by nuclear weapons with the communists on one side and us on the other side, that was, a, that was perceived as a real threat. Now, what did this mean for the two communities we're talking about? The economic, the conservative economic community realized, I think correctly, that communism was, and to the extent that it's still around, 
is the antithesis of Western free market economics. At the same time, the religious community realized, again correctly in my view, that communism was and is today the antithesis of Western type religion. And so each of these two groups came to understand that it was fighting, uh, resisting uh, an enemy that presented an existential threat, not just to the United States politically, but to them and what they stood for. And moreover, these two groups uh, came to realize that they were fighting this enemy was something they had in common. So that, and, and I trace out uh, through the 1950s and 60s, 70s, uh, the process by which, and some of the thinking according to which these two groups facing this common enemy came together. Now, you implicitly pose a very interesting question, which is why did that alliance, to call it that, why did this alliance not come apart after uh, 1989 or 1991. 89 is when the Berlin Wall came down. 1991 is when the Soviet Union uh, collapsed. I see the role of uh, the anti-communism <clears throat> as a kind of catalyst that's comparable to the role of the religious thinking back in the day of Smith and Hume, uh, we, we don't sit around today debating, most of us anyway, at least in the world I live in, most of us don't sit around debating predestination and uh, depravity and other Calvinist precepts the way people did in Scotland in the 18th century and in England in the 17th. But yet the thing that that line of thought brought about, namely modern economics, <clears throat> is still very much here. So in effect, the religious thinking of that time played the role of a catalyst. A catalyst in chemistry <clears throat> is something that triggers a reaction, but then once the reaction is over, the product of the reaction is still there, but the, the catalyst itself is gone. Well, I see this uh, effect of communism, the communist threat at the middle of the 20th century as being the same kind of catalyst. Uh, because of the catalyst of the communist threat, economic conservatism and religious conservatism came together. And then just as what happens to a catalyst in a chemical reaction, the catalyst went away after 1991, but the product of the reaction is still here. And I think we still have this blending of uh, conservative economics and conservative religion. And as I relate in the book, you can see it very much in the policy preferences that people express in our debate over uh, economic policies in the United States right down to the present day. Okay, thank you uh, for that. That that brings us up. Um, well, there's more we could talk about, but uh, we're, we're out of time. But I, w I do want to give you a, a last opportunity to, to share some thoughts 
so as we conclude, Ben, do you want to share any lessons or takeaways from the book, either in terms of important historical transformations you are charting, which perhaps you haven't discussed yet, or uh, simply in terms of helping us better understand our present moment in the American narrative, which seems to be an important moment? Well, Chris, I'll try uh, both of those. First, what I would like people to take away from the book is that it simply isn't true that because modern Western economics grew out of the uh, enlightenment of the 18th century, that economic thinking therefore has nothing to do with religion. I think that's false. Uh, that's the prim primary argument of the book. Uh, I claim that religious thinking uh, had an influence right at the very ground level of the creation of modern uh, economics. And moreover, these uh, from the ground up influences of economic, of religious thinking on economic thinking, then played an important role right down through the 19th and the 20th century, right to the present day, even as the economy changed. And of course, the questions economists were asking uh, changed along with it. These religious resonances were still there and still important. So I think at, a, at an intellectual level, at an intellectual historical level, that's uh, the key takeaway. But second, and I'm glad you asked, I think this is not just, uh, just a matter of intellectual, uh, intellectual history. Uh, I think it's a matter that bears on modern day America. Uh, we have um, a very familiar puzzle of why it is that so many Americans today who benefit from programs like food stamps and subsidized housing and supplemental income and the like, nonetheless vote for candidates who uh, want to roll back or even get rid of those uh, programs. Uh, I'm not in any way the first person who's thought about that uh, puzzle. Lots of political scientists have tried to uh, give us an answer, but their answer doesn't leave any role for religious thinking. And I think the evidence contradicts that. I would say the answer to that puzzle from the political scientists is at best seriously incomplete. And the evidence that I offer is that on one after another of these key economic policy issues that we rightly uh, argue about today, how high should taxes be? Uh, what kind of taxes should we have? What programs should government uh, have how much responsibility should government take for uh, making sure people have uh, jobs, how much, to what extent should we regulate business, all of that sort of thing. It turns out that people's policy views line up, not precisely, of course, but line up very solidly with their religious views. And that's something that the standard uh, views of the political scientists just can't explain, but it happens to be true. And I think if we take that relationship between the religious thinking and the economic thinking on board, we can do a better, a better job of uh, playing whatever role we want to play in these uh, religious debates. Look, this is a democracy. Nobody, no American is going to look at some other American and say, your religious views are wrong. Uh, we don't do that. 
And if somebody's policy views grow out of his or her religious views, well, we have to accept that and understand that that's where the views come from and proceed from there. And I think we do ourselves a disservice by uh, being ignorant. And I think we do ourselves a worse disservice if we're willfully ignorant of that aspect of our national debate. So I think it's important today, too. Well, uh, Ben, that's a, a great summary. Uh, very brilliant uh, analysis in your book. Very helpful, I think, to us all. We have been talking with Ben M. Friedman, the William Joseph Meyer Professor of Political Economy at Harvard University and author of Religion and the Rise of Capitalism about the role that religion plays in economics. Our time together today has helped all of us better understand what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, including seeing how revolutionary and indispensable the idea of religious freedom as a governing principle is to the United States and its future. Join us in building the Digital First National Museum of American Religion by donating at storyofamericanreligion.org forward slash contribute, where you can receive a free gift for a donation of $200 or more. Ben, absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us and doing the really hard work of writing a book that helps us all understand America better. It's been very enlightening, and I hope you've enjoyed the time with us as well. Thank you, Chris. It's been a delight to talk with you. I appreciate it. The podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes will be released on the first and third Mondays of each month on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab.